Well, good morning, everyone. Can you think of a better person to have overseeing income and finance than Linda with a story like that? She was nervous uh, telling that story a little bit on camera. Uh, Linda, you're here this morning in this service. Thank you for sharing that story. And thank you for serving so faithfully. And a good, a good morning to every one of you, whether uh, here or whether North Avenue campus. We're so glad you've chosen to be with us today. Let's do first things first. Yes, my beard is gone. I got it. Uh, numbers of you have already commented to that, uh, to that effect, and I'll, I'll just tell you why. I told you early on, I did it because I was going for the Ramius look. I just love Sean Connery and that whole Ramius look. And then I realized my kids saw me like this, which is a little bit different than the Ramius look I was going for. So yeah, you can take that down. The Ramius you can leave up, but that one you can take down. So I thought, well, let's get back to, let's get back to reality. Very sincerely, a good morning to you. We announced last week, just a reminder, that uh, masks are optional. And I said I'd come back with a little fuller statement, and here is just that statement. Uh, we've been watching all along. We've watched from the very beginning of this of the pandemic and uh, the governor's position and the CDCs and the WHO and uh, Vermont Health, all of those things. We've been watching that for over you know a year plus of course of time. And we work very, very hard to be in compliance with what the governor has asked. We want to keep everyone safe. We've done that all along the way. And we were very encouraged when they took those next steps. And coming July 4th, of course, um, if, if we're, we continue to be on schedule with the state, uh, there'll be no requirements in place, maybe some recommendations and no requirements. Uh, we have lifted that ban here as well as far as masks being worn. I want you to know we're not going to ask people if they're vaccinated or not. That's a personal issue where you're at. In the same breath, if you choose to wear a mask, do it and feel absolutely free. One of the great things about the body of Christ is we're not in judgment of each, each other, not on, not on personal issues of life, not on life in general. If you want to wear a mask, wear one and be absolutely free. If you prefer not to wear that mask, you have that freedom as well. And uh, we look forward to being able to keeping moving forward and seeing uh, just that freedom all come back uh, as, we, uh, as we get back to some normalcy. So uh, there where we're at as a church, and we're so glad that you're here. We're in our series together on uh, marriage, on relationships. I, I couldn't be more excited than today because today I am going to give you, uh, the Apostle Paul actually is going to give to you one of the most incredible keys in changing your relationships. Marriage relationships, work relationships, relationships at home, family, doesn't matter what it is. One of the most incredible keys to changing your, to your relationship. Uh, if you've had those nights where you come home and it's a tough night, uh, you know, the day goes wrong, something happens, and you've had these difficult nights, difficult relationship moments. Uh, I'm going I'm to give you the key to changing those into, be, into the better. So I'm, uh, we're going to get into that in just a couple of moments. But first, let me share a couple of things. Uh, you know, I went online looking at marriage tweets. Uh, things that comments that couples have put down uh, about when they were arguing or what they do when they're mad at each other. Uh, just some, some things along the way. I thought you might like some of them. Uh, I'll read a bunch of them. My husband makes me so angry, so I sent him pictures of the thermostat set at 72 degrees while he was at work. This one, when I'm mad at my husband, I ask him to help me find my phone, and then I put it in my pocket on silent and let him search. That's just mean. Um, my husband is obsessed with keeping our new car in pristine condition. So I carry a little vial of glitter with me at all times, just in case he, he ticks me off. 
Um, this guy wrote, thinking about make, I'm thinking about making an audio recording of me eating my cereal and clanking my spoon on the bowl just to send to my wife when we're in the middle of a fight. Uh, this one, I'm mad at my wife, so I went and liked all the songs on her Pandora list that I know that she hates. <clears throat> I mean, really creative stuff. My husband made me so mad, I made him his favorite chocolate chip cookies. And I used black beans instead of chocolate chips. <laughs> and instead of telling my husband I'm annoyed with him, I just put strawberries in his salad. That's all that it takes. Boy, I get that. I get that. My wife ate the last donut this morning. So I went into her car and I readjusted the driver's seat and all of the mirrors. My husband unloaded the dishwasher. So I guess now it's time to have a parade for him. <laughs> uh, this guy's response, my wife needs six bags for a weekend trip, but she can fit six weeks of garbage and the, and the living room couch into a single bag to avoid emptying the kitchen trash. I like this one, my husband made me so mad, he thinks he's gonna sit in the living room and watch TV in peace. So I downloaded the LG remote app and keep turning the TV off and on from, the, from my bedroom. He came in here and I acted like I was asleep. So now he thinks something's wrong with the TV. <laughs> and this last one, my husband and I have this rule that whoever opens the clean dishwasher has to unload it. Our dishwasher has been loaded since 1995. <clears throat> So the truth of it is, those kind of things somewhat we can relate to. The reason we smile and chuckle a little bit, because number one, we've done them, or number two, we wish we had. We thought, man, that was some good material. So we're talking about marriage and relationships. We're going to end that, wrap up that series this morning. I want to remind you again, this is not just about marriage. Everything we're going to talk about today fits in every situation. Uh, but what have we learned the past couple of weeks? We learned three key things. And of course, the theme that we're, that of our series is things I wish they would have told me. I don't know who they are. But whoever they are, I wish they would have told me some things when I was starting off in my relationship and marriage. First thing we learned is this. We learned that I owe my wife, I owe my spouse everything, and they owe me nothing in return. First thing we learned, that's a good attitude to have. That man, I, I, you know, you owe, I, I owe you everything, but you owe me nothing back. That's the first thing. You know, happy couples, you know, they have that kind of attitude towards one another. Second thing we learned is this, that submission is mutual. I wish they had told me that the best marriages are when both spouses race to the back of the line. Race to be second. Race to put the other one first. Third thing we learned is I wish they had told me that sometimes in a marriage you just have to throw things. Just not things at the other person. And we talked about that. We learned that you do have to throw things, but what God has intended is that we would throw our angst, we would throw our frustrations, we would throw our hurts, and we'd throw them all at him for he can handle them. And today I want to end by reminding you, and for some of you informing you for the first time, that you have a choice. I wish someone had told me I had a choice, and we're going to talk more about that, but let me begin to unpack that a little bit. There is a choice that every coupled person makes every day. There is a choice that every single person in every single relationship makes every single day. Now, for most of us, when this moment comes to make this choice, we don't feel much like it's a choice. We actually believe it's a reaction. 
When I say we have a choice to make, many of us will go, oh, it's not a choice. It's something I'm forced to do. It's a reaction in the moment. But no, it's actually a choice. A choice that we get to make. Now, to find the answer of what that choice is, because that'd be the question, right? What is this choice? To find the answer, we're going to look at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to some church people in the Greek town of Corinth. Now, there's a lot of things going on in Corinth, and of course, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians in just a moment. And if you know a little bit of a history there, you know there's a lot of things happening in Corinth and its background. Uh, this, was a, this was a group of people that had come from a very, very pagan culture. If you do a little research into Corinth of that day, it was an incredibly pagan culture. It was one of the focal points of all the worship of multiple gods and pagan gods with pagan temples high on the mountaintops. And it was a pagan place. But people had responded to the good news of Jesus Christ. People had given their lives to Christ. And now they're trying to figure out this new religion. And one of the things the Apostle Paul is doing as he writes to the people in Corinth, as he writes these letters in 1 Corinthians, he's trying to explain to them what, what it is about this new God. Now, of course, the God of the universe isn't new, but he's new to them. Because they had every other God they could imagine, but they had never embraced the true living God. And so the Apostle Paul is trying to explain to them what this living God was like. He's trying to explain a couple things. First, he has to teach them that there really is only one real God. Only one real living God. Second thing, he has to try to understand the difference between this living God and all the other gods that they have worshipped. You see, in pagan worship, all the other gods don't care anything about people. Let me explain that for just a moment. They care nothing about people and they care nothing about your relationship with people. You see, the gods that they worship, these pagan gods, they toyed with people. They teased people. They manipulated people. They scared people. They threatened people. See, in pagan worship, there was no morality and no ethics. Now, what that means is basically this. What you did to other people, how you thought of other people, how you reacted to them, how you treated them meant nothing in your relationship to any of these gods. Your relationship to other people meant absolutely nothing to these pagan gods. What was important to these pagan gods is what you did to make the gods happy. And so there were requirements. You, you had a sacrifice. Sometimes, you read history, people sacrificed animals. Sometimes they sacrificed their happiness. In some cases, they were even asked to sacrifice their children, and people did literally sacrifice their children on altars of fire to keep the gods happy, to appease them. So Paul's got some work to do because he has to explain to them that this living God is totally different. Absolutely, totally different. He actually cares about people. He brings, he brings this idea of caring into the equation that God cares about creation. And as we've learned last time, or a couple of these times before, because he loves and cares about people, one of the things that God builds into our relationship equation is this idea that he wants us to treat other people the way that he has treated us. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus taught. Jesus gave the, the disciples a model and said, now listen, the way I've treated you, you go treat other people the same way. Well, why is that? Because in this equation, we have this idea of people coming in. So Paul introduces in, it, to us this concept. Now, walk with me a little bit. Paul introduces this concept that the living God brings into the story and he brings into our focus this idea that if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's not just about vertical worship. 
Meaning vertical worship or vertical relationship is this relationship from us up to God. But the Apostle Paul begins to introduce to us, actually the Apostle Paul builds off of what Jesus introduced to us, is that this relationship with God is not just vertical, but it also is horizontal. That our, our walk with God, our love with God is not just about our relationship with him, but it reflects out in our relationship with other people. This would be a total alien idea to the people that were into pagan worship because the gods they worshiped cared nothing about their relationship with other people. So the apostle Paul begins to work with, with them saying, listen, you have to get this idea that it's not, just about the, it's not just about this vertical thing with God, your vertical worship, but our relationships have to matter. And so when you're talking about life and relationship with God, what's included in that is this very basic thing of this horizontal part. And Paul really begins to zoom in on this concept that goes something like this. This would be good to hear. Paul begins to really zoom in on this thought process. Folks, you are not nearly as good with God this way unless you're good with people this way. You see, for a lot of Christians, their whole thought process, well, as long as I'm good like this, who cares about that? And Paul begins to really zoom in on the idea that you are just not all as good as you think you are with God when you're not good with God's people. When you're not in harmony with other people, don't kid yourself, you're not in great harmony with God. So that's the apostle Paul brings in and begins to zoom in on. And this morning, we're going to look at some of the things that the Apostle Paul has to teach us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, this is a very popular chapter in the Bible. It's referred to as the love chapter. Parts of 1 Corinthians 13 show up in 99.9% of every uh, church wedding that ever happens. Parts of 1 Corinthians 13 pops up in there. And I would also say this, that through the years, and, and I use it, and I use weddings all the time. I have it, on my, I actually have it on my wall in my office. I would say that we've taken 1 Corinthians 13 and we've made it into some very nice wedding poetry. It's very poetic stuff. But I would suggest to you that when you really understand it, it's actually pretty gritty stuff. It's actually stuff that when you really grab hold of it, you really have to reckon with it. So here's our text this morning, 1 Corinthians 13. Let me read it for you. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a, a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I... Can fathom, if, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what, it, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. And then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. 
And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Father, as we look to your word this morning, I ask that you would challenge our hearts. I ask that you'd find our hearts to be wide open for your truth to penetrate it and to change us. I pray, Lord Jesus, as we wrap up the series today, as we spend these moments together, I pray very specifically for perhaps that person or persons, that couple, that married couple that are thinking about walking away from it all. Stop them in this moment. Give them a fresh look and and fresh hope. Allow them to see a day that perhaps in the darkness that they are in, they cannot see. For just a moment, give them a glimpse of what you can do in their life. I pray that not just for our marriages, but Lord Jesus, we're going to talk today about relationships in general. And every single person here has a relationship or two or three or four or more where we struggle. So I pray today that you will give hope and encouragement in every one of those relationships. This would be a a life-changing day. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at our text and break it down by verse. And let's, let's jump into that first verse. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a, resong, a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, Paul just finishes telling them, you might have these incredible ecstatic utterances. You might just have the gift of tongues. You might be able to speak in tongues. You might be able to speak in other languages or believe that you can do. Let's just assume for just a moment, he says, that you can do all of that. And you might think that you're speaking in tongues of the gods or of the angels. You might think that's the end all. And Paul says, but you could not be more wrong. Even in a group of people, they look at you with spiritual superiority because you have this incredible gift, he says. But the bottom line is this. If you don't have love, you're just making noise. So better just to be quiet. Now, in my world, being a preacher, I had, this is a great point of, applic- of application. I can do a great illustration here. If you want to know the kind of person that I am, if you want to know the kind of Christian that I am, don't go by what you hear me say. You might say, well, you know, you're a fairly gifted speaker. Sure, but maybe gifted might be just talent. I might just work real, work real hard at training. You don't know, but I might just spend hours watching training videos on how to speak eloquently and really hone the skill down, the talent and the ability. You see, a talent or ability is not the mark of spirituality, right? So if you really want to know what kind of person I am, if you really want to know what kind of Christian I am, go talk to my wife. Go talk to my children. Go talk to my friends. You see, what Paul would tell us is that, you know, love is the bottom line. Gifts, talents, and abilities, you know, you can work at those, manufacture them. You can make them look good. Bottom line is love. Then he goes into verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains but don't have love, I am nothing. Paul adds to that. So maybe you could tell us all, the, you could tell us all about the future. You've got this prophetic gift. You can tell us all about the future. You can see things coming that we can't see. And man, we love listening to you when you talk about what is yet to come. You can fathom all, ministry, all mysteries. You have this incredible knowledge. You could even have such a faith that you can take that mountain and say, get out of the way and it'll move. Admittedly, let's be honest, if we had someone here that could do that, we'd be pretty impressed. And you want to walk out afterwards and tell Mount Mansfield, just step aside a little bit and you can make that move. We'd all go, wow, 
Paul goes, maybe you can do that. But he ends up by saying, but you know what? You got all that knowledge in the world. Make sure you get this. You don't have love, you got nothing. Just a little reminder here, side note, and make sure you remember this. Knowledge does not equal depth. I've been in church business long enough to know there's all sorts of people that have, all, have incredible Bible, biblical knowledge. Knowledge is not the equivalent of spiritual de- depth. What's Paul say is the, the equation to depth? Love. Then he adds verse 3. And if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but don't have love, I gain nothing. Let's just say you are just one crazy giver. I mean, you just have that reputation. It comes, you give it out, whoever has need, man. And you do it just absolutely, you know, having a great time doing it along the way. And let's say you not only give money, but you give of your stuff. You even give of yourself. You sacrifice yourself for the cause. Incredible. But here it is again. He goes, you can do all of that. But if you don't have love, nothing. So Paul basically says this. Anybody who gives to get, gets nothing from God. Anybody who gives to gain, gains nothing from God. And in each of these statements, he has, in in these statements, he has this one little catchphrase that says, and if you have not love, then you have nothing, nothing at all. So the question you have to ask yourself then is what? What does that mean? What does it mean to have love? Interesting thing about this concept. If I were to survey the entire group, everyone here in person, everyone North Avenue in person, everybody watching online, if we did a quick survey and say, listen, everybody, um, do you have love? Everybody would say, absolutely. Absolutely, I have love. Got it. And I said, then what does that mean? You'd say, I don't know what it means, but I know I have it. And then we would say, well, how do you know you have it? You'd say, oh, Scott, when I see those commercials of the, of the abused, abandoned animals, it breaks my heart. I got love. When I see those children, abandoned children, and taken into people, oh, moves me. Scott, when we sing, when we worship, and we start singing those worship songs, man, tears flow down my, my cheeks. Why? Because I've got love. That's where we would go. Now, I look at this text. And I'm thinking that maybe these former pagans and these new Christians were thinking the same way that we think, and that is this. When we ask the question, what does it mean to have love, for most of us, we go internal. Most of us go, yeah, I I got it in here. What does it mean? I don't know what it means, but I know in here something stirs in me, and I got love. And I'm thinking maybe that these, these new Christians coming out of this pagan background were also thinking that this idea of having love was some internal thing. You know, their heart stirred a little bit. And, and maybe they really didn't catch the fact that, that love was both vertical and horizontal. So I think Paul gets real practical here. And so he kind of moves along and he gets into some other verses. So verse 4, and then he says, well, let me tell you what it is. If you're wondering what love is. So love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. And it is not proud. See, those aren't internal things. So I'm thinking maybe the Apostle Paul was sitting there thinking, these guys are probably thinking that because their heart stirs. Now, they didn't have TV back then. So their heart stirs when they see a cat, that guy, hit by a horse in the street. I don't know. They're they're kind of moved inside. He goes, you know, you're really missing the point. And so, again, he kind of antes up a little bit and gives them this perspective of what it is. But then he keeps going in verse 5 and 6. And then he says, and and it does not dishonor others. And love is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps 
no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. So once again, he kind of kick it into high gear to capture the attention. And then he comes to this next part, which is kind of like he kind of rapid fires a couple of things. Love, it always protects, trust, hopes, and perseveres. Now, in those couple of quick descriptive statements that we hit as those fast-moving bullet points, kind of like Paul was kind of rattling them off, there's one, in the, one of them in there that if you think about it, it really doesn't fit the equation real well. And this is where we're going to kind of park ourselves here. It doesn't really fit real well. Um, you see, in the one that doesn't fit real well, it seems a little out of place is the word trust, always trust. See, if you're like me and you think about this, it doesn't really fit the equation quite like it should. Like the other ones. So love always protects. Well, I can protect you regardless. You don't have anything in return for that. I can protect you. Um, it talks about always trust. And it goes always hopes. Well, hope, that's a personal thing. I can hope anything I want. And then it says, you know, that it always perseveres. You know, goes the distance. I can go the distance. I can just decide I'm going to fight through this. But see, the idea of trust is a little odd because most of us would say this. Do you trust the person? you would say, well, are they trustworthy? Right? See, put your trust in someone and you go, well, they have to what? What's the word we use? They have to earn my trust. And so what's interesting here is the way it sits into this context of the verse, it's a little odd because everything else doesn't require anything in return. But when we think of trust, it kind of pushes the envelope a little bit. You know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to trust you to catch me when I fall. I'm going to stand right here, get a group of you, and I'm going to just close my eyes and trust you to catch me when I fall. See, that requires you. I can stand up here and say, I I trust you. Now, some of you, just so you know right up front, I don't trust you at all. So let's just be really honest. Some of you, I would not trust in any way, shape, or form to catch me. And probably rightfully so. But see, it requires a little give and take on that one. So this is where going back a little bit into the Greek helps us because if we dig in a little bit and we find out what does it mean, always trust, it actually translates this way, always believes. So always trust translates always believes. Now we come to the point or I'll share with you what I wish somebody would have told me. Let me explain this. In every relationship, every single relationship, in every marriage relationship, in every friendship relationship, every romantic relationship, every relationship with your kids, with your family, every relationship with your coworkers, in every one of those relationships at times, there is going to be a gap between what we expect from someone and what we actually receive, right? This goes back to the very beginning. We talked about our picture. I have expectations of things that I want in, in any relationship. And I think that you'll get this. I think this tracks pretty simply. And that is in every one of those relationships, there's going to be moments with what I actually get from the person is different than what I want from the person or need from the person, right? There's a gap. Here's my expectation and here's what you're delivering and it's not the same. Every relationship has this gap. And you know, in the marriage relationship goes like this, well, you know, I'll be home by six and it's 7.30 or 8. I'll pick the kids up and they forget. Uh, I'll be sure to tell him and we don't tell him. I'll pick that up on my way home and it doesn't get picked up. You know what I mean? So in, in every relationship, there are going to be these moments, these gaps between what we expect and what we experience. Now stick with me here. Whenever this, this gap shows up, you get to choose how you fill the gap. Now think about this. Every time that gap shows up, and it will show up, 
You get to choose. Actually, you have to choose. Not get to. You have to choose what you're going to fill that gap with. And I will suggest to you right now that it never feels like a choice. It feels like a reaction. It feels like you have been left with no options. When the person doesn't hold their end of the deal, uh, doesn't hold up their end of the deal, and there's this gap between what you expect and what happened, none of us feel if it's a choice. We feel like you're forcing me down this road. You could not be more wrong. You could not be more wrong. You have a choice in that moment as to how to fill that gap. And how do you choose to fill that gap is going to be very, very monumental. And so we either choose to look for and believe the best or to look for and find the worst. Friends, hear it again. It's your choice. And it's your choice every time the gap shows up. I wish, here's the statement for this last one, I wish that they would have told me that when I'm feeling let down or disappointed or frustrated or whenever there's this gap between what I had hoped for or expected and what I actually received, I wish they had told me to always look for the best explanation and then believe it. It would, it would certainly help an awful lot of heartache. If they would have told me in those moments to go look for the very best and then believe it. The best marriages, the best relationships, the happiest couples have learned to look for and believe the best in their spouse. Now, there's always going to be moments in our lives, and without question, there's going to be these gaps when we are let down, and we are, when we are disappointed, when we're stuck there expecting something else, something else. And it's at that moment multiple times over and over again in our relationships where you have to choose and you get to choose what your attitude is going to be like. There's a lot of things you can take home today, but one of those things would be just this. Don't leave here thinking that your attitude really is no one's fault but your own. Because see, I've been around long enough and I've been with enough couples to know that when the gap is there enough times and you get frustrated, we pretty, we pretty quickly begin to believe that I have no choice here. My bad attitude's because of him. It's because of her. It's because of them. And I would say it's your choice. You know, he's late again. He forgot again. He's never home. She's never home. She doesn't understand. I ask her to not to do that. She does it anyway. These things and more and more and more and more. Every time, every single time, we get to make a choice as to how we fill that gap. You choose. Happy, cup, happy couples that not just survive and go the distance, go the long distance with survival, but happy couples that go the distance with joy have figured out that they, if they choose to believe the best, they're better off. So the happiest couples choose to believe the best until they just can't believe it anymore. Now, pause right there real quickly because I know exactly how some of you are thinking. I just made a key statement. Happy couples choose to believe the best until they just can't believe the best anymore. And some are you thinking, whoop, that's exactly where I'm at right there. I just can't believe the best anymore. And I would contend to you, did you ever really believe the best? I mean, have you ever really given that a try? Over the long haul, you just keep saying, I'm going to choose the best. I'm going to choose to believe the best. Or did you kind of quickly get to the end of the story? So don't lie to yourself. Don't fool yourself. Choosing to believe the best 
Andy Stanley shares this illustration. An author by the name of Marcus Buckingham wrote a book on business management. Now catch this. He wrote this book on business management and business leadership. He wrote a book on how to deal with your, your coworkers, how to deal with the employees, how to have a healthy business environment. And part of this research he quoted is this. They actually did some research when he states that a 20-year study was done. A 20-year study was done on happily married couples. So for two decades, they tracked and they surveyed happily married couples from the U.S., from Canada, and from Europe. Now, please get this. They were looking for truly happy couples. They weren't just looking for couples that kind of looked happy on the outside. So they had to do some work to figure out whether they really were happy couples or not. And they were tracking them over a long distance. They were looking for couples who had gone the distance. I mean, they weren't surveying newlyweds. I mean, they're all happy for at least some period of time. So they didn't track them. They weren't asking that they weren't tracking people who stayed together through all the years because of the kids. Not tracking those people. They weren't tracking people who stayed married because they couldn't afford to get a divorce. Not those people. They literally tracked those people who had gone the distance, been in the marriage for years, and were still in the marriage, enjoying their spouse, enjoying their married life together. Now, admittedly, what they were going in for is this. They would end with a thought that said, if we look at enough of these couples, might it be possible that we could find a common denominator? And all of these couples over 20 years, a common denominator. They were also honest enough to say that when they went in, they couldn't help but make some assumptions. You see, they believed that what they would find were a bunch of people. Now, catch this. This is very transparent on their part. They surveyed all these happy, happily married couples, and they went in expecting that what they would find was a bunch of people who had adjusted, who had downgraded their expectations, people who basically had settled for what they had. And I would say to you, that's a fair assumption, right? For any one of us been in a relationship, you kind of go, well, you know, I have this goal, but it's not going to be there. I have this expectation, so we got to make some trades along the way. And they expected to find people who basically had decided along the way that they would settle for what they had and they'd make the appropriate accommodation. They actually found a common denominator in all of these couples, and it was the opposite of what they expected. What's interesting is this. Now, through these years and through the surveys, they asked these couples multiple questions over and over again, checking along the way to see what they had been finding and discovering. And on one section of the questions, they were asked to rate. Each couple was asked to rate their spouse and then rate themselves on, on different categories. Rate your spouse. How does your spouse rate? And how do you rate? Now, catch this. What they found interesting is that consistently the happiest couples rated their spouse more positively than they rated themselves. Over and over again, what they found was quite quite interesting is that in every quality, they rated their spouse as being higher in that quality, better at that quality, more robust in that quality than they rated themselves. It would seem then that the happiest couples had an unrealistically positive view of the person they were with. It means if they were looking, they're comparing, if they were to pick a category of happiness or joy or faithfulness or patience, they would look at their spouse and give them a nine or a ten. They'd give themselves a three or a four or five. Whatever it was, it was always lower. They always rated themselves lower than they rated their spouse. One summation of the study said this. One guy wrote this. He said, so as we look at the study, we find that love really is blind. 
Love really is blind. Because, they wrote, they seemed to be blind to the deficiencies of their spouse. I'll bet you're not blind to the deficiencies of your spouse. I know my wife's not blind to my deficiencies, nor am I blind to hers. Right? That's why we hear this, we love is blind, we all chuckle a little bit because we go, yeah, I see pretty clearly. I don't even need glasses at my age. To, I, I need glasses for everything else, but I don't need glasses to see deficiencies in my spouse. Kind of interesting. So then, as a result of this study, they made this, re- they made this recommendation. Now, catch this. this is, I love this. They made this recommendation. Not just for marriage relationships. Don't forget, this book was written about business relationships. Leadership in the business place. So, for all relationships, family, work, whatever. They recommend this. Here we go. When the gap shows up between expectation and experience, they recommended that you find the most generous explanation you can for the behavior which is letting you down and then believe it. Just think about that for a moment. So they said this, so when the gap shows up and the person's let you down, so you got to fill that gap with something, their recommendation is this, stop and think about what is the most generous explanation that can explain this person's, in this case, the spouse's failure, the, the spouse's letting this down. What's the most generous explanation you can come up with and then believe it and then act on it? Example, this can go either way. Say your spouse is gone a lot. She's never home. He's never home. Man, she has let us down. She doesn't love us. She doesn't care about us. How do you think that plays out when she does get home? If the attitude is she's never home, she's too busy doing all these things, she doesn't care about the rest of us, how do you think that plays out when she does come home? Let me give you an option and make this choice. It kind of goes like this. Man, she's never home, but you know what? I believe that she'd rather be home. I believe that she's got a lot of stuff on her plate pulling at her in every single direction. Man, I can't wait till she gets home. Maybe I can release that burden. Let me just ask you, which night do you think is going to go better? Which dinner do you think is going to be more joyful? Which dinner table do you think is going to be the happiest? I mean, real quickly you get the picture. Now, I'm not naive. I've been doing this for a long time and I've I've been married for a long time. Diane and I both get it. We've seen it all. Yes, there are obstacles. But first, but first, don't use your history to try to discredit the power of Paul's words. Don't try to use your background and experience to invalidate when Paul says, hey, always believes. Love always believes. Always looks for what that they believe the best explanation is and then believes it and then acts on it. Let me be honest. Few of us, including me, have ever really taken this approach. When I was studying and reading and, 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 and saw this commentary and on all of this, I was thinking, man, how powerful that is. In my own relationship, if I were to just begin to say, every time there's a gap and there will be a gap, to say, I'm going to look to find the most generous explanation and then I'm going to choose to believe it. Now, there are some obstacles I'll address, quickly address just a couple of them will wrap up. First obstacle, past history. Uh, their past history, your past history. You know, he did it again, she did it again. 
You know, those words, yeah, he did it again. I know. In fact, Diane knows he did it again. She can tell you all the things. I got, I got that. It's an obstacle. But this generous explanation, just so you know, is not quick and it's not immediate. It's not going to happen overnight to have to change. Another obstacle is you. First obstacle is them in their history. First obstacle, next obstacle is you. Let's be honest. You didn't show up in the relationship with a clean slate. I mean, let's be really, really honest. You brought all your baggage with you into the relationship. And for some, there's been a lot of baggage because you've been on one long trip. And so you bring in all your baggage and that complicates things. Got it? So you have your history and you have not only that, but you have your history of your hurts and letdowns, all of those things. That complicates it. It's an obstacle. Let me give you a third obstacle. We'll talk about this one for a little bit. And that third obstacle is suspicion. The third obstacle is suspicion. Let me tell you, I've been doing this long enough to be able to say this with absolute confidence. Suspicion is a self-fulfilling prophecy. In relationships, suspicion is self-fulfilling. You assume the worst in someone and you look for the worst in someone and I guarantee you will find it. Without question. Years ago, I, this particular gentleman, I know, I know him well. One Sunday, he was here at church and he was standing out in the lobby, standing up against the wall on the corner there, right kind of where you could see him in every direction, standing his back against the wall and just standing there and not moving. He looked a little odd, maybe a little angry, certainly a little creepy. Just stood there. I noticed, didn't think much about it, but I came back sometime later, still standing there. I, I had it went over, I said hi, and kept going, and still there. So finally I went over sometime later and said, hey, so what happened? What's going on here? I said, you looking for somebody? He goes, you know what, pastor? It's a test. I've been standing here all morning to see who would greet me, shake my hands, and make me feel welcome, and I've proven it. This is not a friendly church. I said, well, I got to tell you, you're not looking all that friendly. I said, I know you, and I didn't want to come over and say hi to you. Imagine someone who didn't know you. You know what? If you look for it, you will find it. Suspicion is a deadly thing. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So let me wrap up by going back to a couple of verses and then reapplying them with some new eyes. Um, Sorry about that. Verse 6. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Kind of a tricky one here, so let me help you with this one. It means this. Love doesn't try to catch the other person slipping up. Love doesn't try to catch the other person in getting in trouble. Love doesn't build a case against the other person. Uh, Love doesn't have a gotcha moment. Gotcha, I knew it. Love doesn't keep score. Uh, Verse 7. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Let's talk about always protects. Protects from what? I would suggest protecting from suspicion. Protecting from lack of trust. Protects from filling the gap with the worst as opposed to choosing the best. How about always trust? Chooses to believe the generous explanation. It always hopes. I love this one. Love is an optimist. Love is an optimist. What's the uh, uh, negative side of optimism? Going negative. Let's be honest. Left to our own without inviting God's Holy Spirit to work in in your life. And you know where we go? We always go negative. Love is optimistic. It always perseveres. Love isn't looking for a reason to bail out. 
It's creating the reasons why to stay in. So in all honesty here as we wrap up, would you answer this question? You don't have to answer it out loud. Just ask you to answer it. So based on your personality, based on your past experiences, based on your best honest look at yourself, which way do you usually go with people when they let you down and create the gap? Do you usually go best or do you go worst? The gaps are going to be there. Do you go to the worst explanation or do you choose to go to the best explanation? And I say that, answer that question with no explanation. Because what happens, some of you want to get an answer, but you want to say, well, I got an answer, Scott, but I really need to explain my answer. Nope. No explanation. Do you tend to go best or do you tend to go worst? The happiest couples, the happiest people in any relationship choose to go best. Let me end with a picture and then your final homework. So your son or daughter is now grown up. They're getting married. And they sit down and they say to you, give me your best advice, mom. Give me your best advice, dad. Give me your best advice how to have a happy marriage. So you sit down and say, well, basically, honey, here's the deal. Early in the marriage, lay a trap. Early in the marriage, lay a trap. And then just watch. And eventually, he's going to step into it. And when he does, now you've got him. And you can hold that over his head for the rest of your marriage. Or maybe this approach. Listen, honey. She is going to let you down. He is going to let you down. Nobody can meet every one of your your needs and no one is perfect. So they're going to let you down. And when that happens, and I guarantee it will, in that moment, right then, would you stop and think, what's the most generous explanation I can come up with as to explain his or her behavior? And then, sweetheart, believe it and then act on it. Now, question for you. Which of those two pieces of advice do you think breeds the happiest marriage? Now it gets clear, doesn't it? So here's your homework. Homework, yes. Aren't you, aren't you gl- lucky that I can't go back home with you and find out if you do it or not? Homework, here it is. For one week, specifically for those who are married, but in any of your relationships, for one week, would you make a promise to yourself, a commitment, and then keep it, that for one week, every time you are frustrated... Every time you are let down, every time there's a gap between what you expected or what you received, even if it's nine out of ten times and there's just no good reason, every time for one week, would you choose in that moment to say, what's the best explanation I can come up with? And I'm going to choose to believe it and then I'm going to act accordingly. Just imagine how different life will be if we all practice that even for just a week. Final verse, just one small part of verse 8. Love never fails. Stan, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your truths in our lives, not just this morning, but these past weeks, for the truth of your word and and how you have a way with laser accuracy coming right into our hearts and right into our relationships. 
As I began with that first prayer, oh Lord, I pray for the person or persons might be watching, listening, that are getting ready to step out and bail out. And Lord, I would just pray that they'd stay in. They might need some help. They may need to get some counseling. They may need someone else to, to come in and help them sort it all out. But oh, how I pray that there'd be one or two that would just say, nope, I'm going to stay and I'm going to try this. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would take an approach, if even just for the week, but I'm convinced if even just for a couple of days, we might see a whole different relationship begin to give birth. That we might be see different home life, a different experience at the workplace where we change the thought process and then we get to enjoy the new relationship. Don't just do your work in everybody else. Do your work in me as well. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.